0: Uh, Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn with me uh, to the 971st chapter of your Bible. And while you're trying to figure out which one that is, I want, that's Mark 14, actually, Uh, Mark chapter 14. I I thank the Lord for the privilege to have my wife with me this morning as well. Um, Over the last few years of health issues that we've dealt with, I've said to others that I felt like my wife deserves some kind of an honorary nursing degree, uh, that she's, she's helped uh, bring me through several, uh, several physical woes, I guess, that we've had to, had to contend with, but God's been gracious, good, and, and kind. You know, I, I know that we have but just a few minutes together this morning, and yet we are connected for the last uh, 25 years. And uh, some of you have faithfully given to our work and our ministry financially and prayerfully. Uh, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. And I have taken it very serious about the gathering that we have together this morning to share our work. It, it reminds me, you know, sometimes knowing exactly what to say, what to preach and how to convey and convince, try to encourage and prop up the church uh, in their giving and their focus on mission, the mission of God and uh i you know this this is a serious day it's a serious matter a serious month for your church in that you are looking at at the at the world and and the fate of the world many times uh folks think that the business meeting of the church is is an important meeting of the year but in reality i think the most important business meeting of the year is usually the mission conference because this is where you determine uh, how to turn silver into souls. Amen. This is where you focus on getting the gospel to the regions beyond and going to places and delivering the, the gospel message in tongues and languages that are unspoken and unlearned at this moment. And so I I commend you for your faithfulness, your effort, obviously, uh, with the hurricane and all that the church has been through itself. You've stuck right beside us and and continued to lift us up both financially and, and, and prayerfully. We, we commend you for that. Thank you for that. Um, we're in uh, Mark chapter number 14 this morning for the next few minutes. I'd like to try to share with you the word of God, give you what's upon my heart. Also acknowledge that, you know, um, there may be a platform up here of a couple of feet, but it doesn't raise me above anyone else. I am but a messenger, but a servant of Jesus Christ, amen. And uh, though the Lord's allowed us the experiences he's given us in our life and ministry, we are uh, simply vessels and instruments in God's hands, as any of you are or could or should be a simple vessel and the instrument that God can use. So this morning, as we look at this story, the story of we know from the four separate accounts of this story recorded in all four gospels that this was Mary of Bethany. This was Martha's sister or the sister of Lazarus as we would also know her. Uh, A very interesting backdrop to Mark chapter number 14. Jesus is now ending his public ministry uh, right here in chapter number 14. We would say out of the 72 steps from uh, the cradle to the cross, we would be at step number 50. When I say steps, we're talking about divine appointments by God, things that God had preordained and, and, and would have Jesus Christ to do during his public outreach, his public ministry. One scholar defined uh, the ministry of Christ in three categories. They said the ministry began as a, uh, or his life began with a period of obscurity. We don't know a whole lot between his birth and 12 years of age. We don't know a whole lot between 12 years old, and 18 years of age. So we call that a period of obscurity. Then we see when he enters the public scene in ministry, uh, he was very liked. The multitudes and multitudes of people followed after him, and that was this period of popularity. Where we're at right now in the pages of Scripture, in Mark chapter number 14, we are already in the middle of what they refer to as a, as a period of Of hostility. So soon, within a week's time or so, Jesus would be taken up to the cross and be crucified. We're in the book of Mark, chapter 14. So Mark's entire emphasis on the life of Christ, as we know, is an emphasis towards his servanthood. This is interesting because what you see is a picture of devotion this morning. So let's read these first. Nine verses together. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. This word craft is an English word we get uh, the word stealth from. it. They wanted to secretly murder him, uh, but they didn't want to do it in a manner that would bring any kind of uh, kickback. So they said, but verse two, but they said, not on the feast day unless there be an uproar of the people. One scholar suggested that there was perhaps as many as 2 million people in Jerusalem during the Passover week at times. I mean, people came from other countries. They came from afar. Uh, And of course, the uproar of the people would have been more of a problem during and leading up to Passover week as any other problem. He said in verse 3, And being in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, As he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? You know, isn't it amazing what some people call waste God calls worship? You know how some people uh, look at you going to church on Sunday morning and they're always just wasting their time. They're just wasting their money. Uh, they're just wasting their life. But in truth, what you're doing is worshiping God. And he said right here, some called it waste. He said in verse number four, why was the, this waste of the ointment made? For we might have been, for it might've been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor and they murmured against her. And Jesus said, let her alone, why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me, for ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me, ye have not always. She hath done what she could. I like that. I want you to underscore that if you're one to write in your Bible this morning. She hath done what she could. The title of my sermon this morning is exactly that. She hath done what she could. I want to propose that question to you as a church, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a disciple, as a Christian, as a church worker, Sunday school teacher, a singer, whatever it is that you do to glorify God with your life, uh, have you done all that you can, is the question. I feel like these are end times. I feel like that the, the clock is, is counting down. I, I sense that the, the sand is draining out of the hourglass. As we speak, we are we are with less and less opportunity to to advance the kingdom of God, to further the causes of Christ. He says in Galatians chapter number six, verse number ten, he says, As ye have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. I mean, as we have opportunity, we should be ever vivid and active in doing and accomplishing the work and the will of God in our lives. Can I hear an amen right there? We need to do absolutely everything we can. Why? Because of the urgency of the hour. And I feel that as I studied this passage, chapter number 14 is intriguing to me for a number of reasons. One is this, uh, this chapter is somewhat like a pendulum, if you could imagine that or picture. That in your mind, Uh, one pendulum that swings completely to the left and then again uh, to the right, that's your left and my right, is, and and, you know, there's these extremes in our life. I feel that what you're reading with me in this portion this morning uh, concerning Mary is that we find an unreserved, unrestrained, unbridled generosity and devotion out of Mary, but as you read the ending of the chapter, you you get into the story of how Judas Iscariot actually denied and deceptively betrayed Jesus, his own Lord. So on one end of the spectrum, you've got these highly devoted people. And then sometimes on the other end of the spectrum, uh, those those that just blaspheme and deny God altogether. And I feel like that in my Christian walk, and I'm being 100% honest with you, I'm not always over here hanging on the on the on the high side of devotion. I, I feel like sometimes I'm ashamed. Honestly and frankly, I feel like I'm ashamed. I should have said something to that person. I should have, you know, went the extra mile, should have pushed a little harder. I should have maybe uh seized that moment a little better, whatever it might be. And I'm sure any honest Christian this morning would say, you know, when you hear of a of a friend or a coworker that just suddenly passes, and you're like, I I can't even remember real good if I ever pointedly asked them whether or not they were a believer. you know. And, and sometimes on that side of the pendulum, you see yourself as a denier. You see yourself perhaps more as, as one not completely committed, devoted and consecrated to the work of God. So we, we see this picture in the entire chapter and for sake of time this morning, I wanna focus simply on the first half of this and that is what Mary did. She did what she could. Uh, Jesus here as servant in the book of Mark, we have no record of his birth. We have no record uh, of his death. Those things are omitted. And might we say that it is because uh, no one always cares when a servant is born or when a servant dies. When you look at the book of Matthew, you see uh, him presented as king. And there is 18 chapters of the book of Matthew that have discourse and dialogue from Christ. And then you get to the book of Matthew and that's cut in half to only nine. So, uh, you know, a lot less talking, a lot more doing, maybe as one one read we could take on that. In other words, uh, could we add this this morning and say what he did proved who he was? Can I say this morning that what you do proves who you are? I mean, it's not just what we say, it's what we do, amen? The action behind our belief is what motivates others to follow. And, he, you know, this is, a, this is a, a, a truth and a simple truth that should profoundly resonate with, with all of us as we look at the, the, the life of Christ, that what he wrought simply authenticated what he had taught, in other words, he backed it up. He put his money where his mouth was at. Amen. Let's just say it that way. There's, there's one thing for us to talk about God, loving God, loving his word, expanding his name, promoting his church and, and, and serving his church. But it's another thing for us to act. Amen. There's another thing for us to get involved. It's another thing for us to engage. And we're in a world today where, where uh, commitment is, is very low. Now we'll go sign... We'll go sign for a truck or something, you know, 80 months or whatever to drive a truck around. But sometimes when it comes to committing to Christ, to the work of God, the expansion of his kingdom, the promotion of his name to the far ends of the world by faith, we we can't do that. So I I encourage us this week, this month, even as it concludes here shortly, that we, we have an opportunity to expand we have an opportunity to extend. We have an opportunity to show our greatest devotion to Jesus Christ. Watch this. Uh, some of you have perhaps uh, heard the name C.T. Studd. He was uh, among the Cambridge Seven. Uh, lots of things were said concerning these uh, these Cambridge Seven. But I, I remember one of the quotes, one of the famous quotes that has stuck with me uh, uh, I would say famous, he said some want to live within the sound of a church or a chapel bell, but I wanna run a rescue shop in a yard from hell is what he said. He had, he had a real devotion, he had a real commitment. He, if Jesus Christ is God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. These were men that were completely committed, completely devoted to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at the story, and we've read most of this here this morning, some were moved with indignation. I want you to notice some folks that were at this house. We know that there were certain disciples there. We know Mary was there. Simon the leper was there. And you know, we think of the three and a half plus years of ministry that these disciples have now witnessed. They've seen miracle after miracle. They've seen blind people get their sight back. They've seen deaf people hear again. They've seen all sorts of miracles. They were eyewitness to these very miracles. They knew uh, firsthand what Jesus could do. And here we are in the last uh, week before his crucifixion. And this, uh, this boggles my mind. It boggles my mind. I ask myself, we well, studying this text, you know, should not more than just Mary have known that what Jesus had already prophesied and predicted was being fulfilled, that he would soon be offered up, that he soon would lay down his life, a ransom for many? Why, why are they not putting the pieces together? What's missing? Why, how is it that they could be so long with Christ himself in person and not get what he's talking about? but then I feel that way myself sometimes. How can I be in the church and be, you know, since I was two months old, my mama's bounced me on her knee and I was in church since I was two months old. There's, there's no doubt. I've, I've been in, I've preached in over 1500 churches. I've been all over the, the country, you know, preaching myself. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, there's, there's so much to this book. There's so much to learning about the ways and the manners of Christ that, you know, with this book in my hand and many more Bibles just like this in my home that I still don't always get what he wants. I still don't always see it. And the question must be asked then, through what bias, through what grid or or, or grill of of cultural influence am I looking through that's causing me not to see what he wants me to see? Look at Look at this real quick this morning, how these disciples, the very disciples, should have known, but they obviously did not so let me give you just by introduction here a couple of thoughts for you to jot down number 1 it's it's important to notice these disciples were missing the big picture would you agree with me this morning they were missing the bigger picture they were missing the bigger picture as regard to this alabaster box they were still missing the big picture in acts chapter number 1 when they were asking you know, Lord, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When are we going to get out from under this Roman rule? When are you going to become our Messiah and set up the Jewish kingdom again? And their minds were so earthly. Jesus spoke so heavenly and so spiritually about what he was attempting to do that they were missing God's big picture. It's a dangerous thing for us to come in and out of the church of God week in and week out and miss God's big picture. God's not just thinking about our congregation. He's not just thinking about you. It isn't just about you and it isn't certainly just about me. It's about him. God's big picture is his name, his global glory, amen. It's for us to promote and advance his name. My wife sent me to the, uh, to the grocery store. She sent me to the refrigerator in our own house. So many times I said, honey, would you grab me the mayonnaise, you know? I opened the refrigerator. I think, oh, there's some Coke. Uh, there's a little bit of leftover cheesecake or whatever. You know, my mind goes to what I want. I can't even see the mayo. I mean, I, I, because there's something in there already that, that's hooked to my desire, what I want. How many of you got a yearbook at home? You go pull that off the shelf and what's the first thing you do? You just flip through the pages. You go to your class. When you find your class, what do you do? You look for your face. There's something about us being centered on ourselves sometimes that we see only what we want to see. I think that's what was happening with these disciples. They were were anxious about Christ being their leader, yes, and they were following him, yes, but they were missing the bigger picture. The bigger picture was God reconciling fallen man to himself by the death that he performed on the cross Notice another thing here in verse number five, they were murmuring against the wrong person. Would you agree with that? They put their mouth on Mary, come on now, they put their mouth on Mary when in fact she was the one, God said, you leave her alone. She has done good, what she's doing is right. You take your mouth off of her. He had had to basically rebuke the other disciples because she was on target and they were all off target. Murmuring against the wrong person. I've seen it come around in the church many, many times where we're very, very quick to put our mouth on the preacher, very quick to put our mouth on something or some situation. And in truth, we, you know, a few months goes by, maybe a year, and we're like, wow, that didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to work out. I mean, hey, God had something bigger in, in plan there. And we we murmur against the wrong person. This is another this is another holdback, I guess, in these disciples' lives. Notice the third one here. It says in the same verse, verse number five, when they said, I'm <clears throat> sorry, they said, for this could have been sold for more than 300 pence and been given to the poor. What, were they, what was going on here? They were being misled by, by possessions, misled by money. Let me tell you, when God give us, it's just one of many circumstances but God gave us that building out there in in Seymour. I mean, just give us sixty thousand square foot facility for our ministry to stabilize itself in there. And I, I thank God for that, and I'm I give Him the glory. The, it needed a roof on it, which is a big roof, as you, two acre roof it needed on it. Uh, and you know we didn't have the resources for that this last year through one man. Over $100,000 was donated to repair that roof. Over and over and over again, I could tell you story after story after story where if you fix your eyes on possessions, you'll never do nothing for God. But when you realize that, hey, God's, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns the hills too, amen. That God can take care of every need that we have, that there is nothing outside of his reach, outside of his eye, outside of his care, that all knowing almighty God is your God. He's the God of this church, amen. He's the God we worship. When we start measuring things as to how much money we got in our pocket or what the bottom of our bank account looks like, you know, we might not really attempt great things at all for God. But right here in this passage, what you see is unbridled, unreserved devotion and commitment here. But these disciples, on the other hand, uh, other side of the table, so to speak, misled by possession, misled by money, probably the worst thing of of all that I see out of the disciples here. And I'm gonna give you some good news in a minute. Let me just finish this. The worst thing I think I see, they murmured against her saying things like, this could have been sold for 300 pence. That would have been what most people would say the equivalent of about a year's wage. So just put that figure in your mind. I don't know how much you make in a year, but just take that one number in your mind and consider what it'd feel like to give all of that in that black box on the back wall at one time. And that's what happened. This was the extravagance of her gift. This is what she did but, you know, there was others, and it says over here in John chapter number 12, if you want to turn with me, you can look there. It gives us the name of who actually said this, who spoke this. It was, it was Judas. It says in John uh, chapter number 12, let me read to you, verse 2. There they made a, a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. This is the same story being retold by John. And verse 3, then took Mary a pound of ointment, a spikenard, uh, very costly. Over in the other passage, he uses the word precious, very precious. And by the way, that word precious, study it out sometime over in the book of Peter. He refers to his own blood as precious. And let me tell you, God values your giving. He values your devotion. He values your gift. He values your commitment to Christ enough so to use inequality, some of the very same words that he refers to his own sacrifice. Think about that. He said in verse number three, Then took Mary a pound of ointment and spikenard, um, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence? There, we got it. Verse six, this he said, here you go. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and he bare what was put therein. What's he saying? What I see happening right here is this this masquerading as spiritual, masquerading as one who cares. Judas didn't care. Bible said he didn't care. Bible said this he said, not that he cared for the poor. He had no heart, no compassion for the poor. And I would say there's many churches that I've met up and down the road, they give money, yes, but there's no heart, there's no compassion for the lost. Judas said this, but he was simply masquerading as one who cared. I think probably one of the biggest dangers in our life is not only missing God's big picture, not only sometimes... uh, this, this idea of, of, of murmuring against the wrong person but, or being misled by possession, but masquerading as someone who would care when in truth, God's not done that work in our heart as it should be done. That's what conference is for, amen, is that God would help us get our hearts, our minds, and our focus where it needs to be. Three th- Three or four thoughts here real quick and let me give them to you fast. I want you to see some good news in this chapter. In verse number three of chapter number 14, and beginning in Bethany and being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper as he sat at meat, I want you to notice with me this morning the house guests. There's several house guests here that are at Simon's house that is so intriguing to me. They were here in celebration of what? Well, first we would know they'd be celebrating the fact that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. They had been wanting to kill Jesus. This this hostility was ramping up, but there was as much hostility against Lazarus at this moment as there was against Christ. Look at John chapter number 12, they sought to kill Lazarus too, just for saying that Jesus raised him. (laughs) So think about it with me this morning, the house guests that are, how many people are seated at that table? Simon the leper was there. I would say he's referred to as Simon the leper. You read back a few chapters earlier, he was made whole of his leprosy. Most lepers had to stay outside of the walls of the city, outside of the camp or whatever. But here he's sitting in his own house at his own table, serving as a host to his friends. So he's referred to it, known as Simon the leper, but he's not a leper anymore. Leprosy is a type of sin in the Bible. And as you know, we can make an analogy here, a beautiful picture here, and look at some common denominators here. Lazarus, formerly a dead man. Simon, formerly a diseased man. Mary and Martha were there, formerly the two that we read about later in John's gospel that were in utter dismay about the fact that Jesus took four days, that Lazarus had been dead for four days and now stinketh, he said. And Jesus brought him out of the tomb. <laughs> These two sisters were distraught. They were disappointed. They were discouraged, depressed. Whatever word you want to use, they, they were down. But now they're back at this table in celebration of some realities and some facts. Let me tell you something this morning as we sit here in this beautiful sanctuary at Fellowship Baptist Church. Uh, I don't know what brought you to this house. But I know what brought me to this house. Once I was dead, I was alienated from God. I was diseased in my own sin. I was polluted in my own blood. I was, I was, I was outcast. And he came to me. He came to me. I was discouraged, disappointed with my life. There was, there was really looking forward. There was no hope of eternity. There was no hope of knowing God. There was such a, a chasm between us. There was such a, a great gulf fixed between me and God. There was not enough righteousness in myself to, 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 to merit the favor, the love of God, except for and but and by the amazing grace of God was I brought to him, As the song says, once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was blind, but now I can see, amen. You know, there's a common denominator that should bring every one of us into this house every single week without fail. And that is to rejoice in these facts, rejoice in the fact that yes, we are no longer, we are no longer outcasts, we are no longer dead, diseased and defiled in our own sin, but we've received the imputed righteousness of God Almighty. And we stand in his grace right now. We stand in the amazing grace of God. I thank him for that. I don't know about you, but I bless his name this morning that I, that I didn't have to, I couldn't work my way to heaven. There was, no, there was no magical waters in a baptistry somewhere that would wash away my sin. It took the, the, the death of Christ on the cruel cross of Calvary to reconcile me to God. And if you're lost without Christ this morning, I, I encourage you to take heed to the scripture today. Don't live the rest of your life thinking that you can work your way into God's favor. God's already satisfied. He's satisfied with the death of his son. He says, if you'll put your faith and your trust and your confidence in him and repent of your sins, you will be saved. You will be saved. These house guests, they look at the common denominator. What brought them there? They wanted to give. They wanted to give. They wanted to give back. They wanted to rejoice. That's what caused her to break this alabaster box itself. Another thing, you could look at the cost of their devotion. You could look at the cost of their devotion. For sake of time, let's move quickly to this second point. Look at the heirloom that she gave. We say heirloom because alabaster boxes in that time, which actually helped to preserve the best of the oils. This oil... More than likely, uh, some of you might know essential oils and some of that. Just a little bitty vial of that frankincense is, what, 80 bucks, 100 bucks? So you can imagine a pound of spikenard. Most of the study that I've done on this text, it it teaches a truth about this heirloom and this little expensive flask, if you will, that she broke. Usually they would use these oils uh, for like the honeymoon night, they would maybe put that rich aroma in the room or on the sheets. They would use it also to anoint uh, a dead body as they did even uh, in Bible times. uh, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, being the wealthy man that he was, he didn't know how much it would take. You study how much he actually bought of of frankincense and myrrh and such to to actually anoint Jesus' body Uh, They said that sometimes it would take up to 75 pounds. He bought like 200 pounds of this stuff. He spent a lot of money. Plus he offered up the tomb. Uh, You you understand the the extravagance here. There's a picture of of extravagance here. There's a picture in that it was very costly, but Jesus was worth it. There's a picture of, of extravagance, yes, but there's also a picture of eternality here. That what she was doing was an eternal thing on an eternal God for an eternal circumstance, an eternal situation. Christ, who would die for the sins of the world, you and I could now to this day still find hope and grace because of this sacrifice. There's also an element, a feature of envy here. Some of them were riled in that she gave it And there will always be, probably in every church, when those that want to serve and give and do, others will look on and say, well, they'll settle down a little bit. They've only been saved a year or two. They'll calm down after a while, you know. Don't be that person. Encourage the fire. Amen. (laughs) Fan the flames. Help folks get to where they need to be in their sacrifice, in their devotion. You know, you say, Brother Paul, if, you know, this was an expensive flask, this could have been worth a year's wages and she went and offered it all at once. And, you know, I, I, if I had a million dollars, I'd do something like that, but I don't have that kind of money. I'm, I'm you know, it reminds me of a little story I heard of a, a little fella walked up this big guy, big brute of strapping brute of a man. He said, you know, if I was big as you was, I'd go out in the woods and I'd find the biggest, baddest bear I could not just whoop him for the fun of it. And the big guy looked at the little guy and he says, you know, I'm sure there's some little bears out there, amen. I mean, you don't have to go pick the big one. You could like go find you a small one and just try whooping him. You know, I, I think sometimes we're always stepping back saying, you know, if I'm doing something for God, I could do this big thing. Well, won't you just do some little things and put all those little things together and great and mighty things can be accomplished for the kingdom of God. I believe that. This harsh, grumbling against Mary is also rebuked by our Lord very quickly. He rebuked their scorn in verse number six, their judgmentalism of her, their worldly mindedness toward materialism. He said, stop it, stop it. You leave her alone. He rebuked them instantly. Secondly, he not only rebuked their scorn, but this sounds almost um, like an oxymoron of sorts, but he rebuked their sympathy. And I think there is a need for this in the church today. I've been all over the world. These missionaries that you've meet and come, we've probably seen uh, the poorest of the poor there is in the world. And notice what Jesus said to them. He said, for you have the poor with you always and whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me, you have not always. What's he saying? You need to get your priorities straight. This isn't about men. This is about me, he was saying. He was being anointed for his, for his burial prematurely. If you noticed um, the whole picture, the bigger picture of what is going on here was that Christ was going to need to fulfill the scripture spoken even up to 700 years prior to this by different prophets that he would come, he would be crucified and he would die. And yet, you know, it is easy for us sometimes to get caught up in, even in missions, looking at, uh, at the need for Water bottles and blankets and all of those things are necessary in some places and certainly necessary to some degree. But we oftentimes find ourselves sharing a sympathy with the world at the expense of actually devotion, worship and commitment to Christ. Is that a point? Can y'all say amen there? I believe it's a point. I think it's a real thing. I think it happens often. He rebuked their sympathy. Because many times the falsity and the spiritual falsity or the Phariseeisms of this, the pious platitudes that we oftentimes offer in these situations have really nothing to do with true devotion and worship to God. Many times the Pharisees did what they did only to be seen of men. Thirdly, he rebuked their stewardship when he says, me, you have not always. You know, we sometimes will either bury our treasure or we'll invest our treasure possibly some might even waste their treasure but buried treasure is one of the harshest rebukes in all the Bible he uh, gave one ten one five and one one the guy that had one went and buried it in the ground and when it was dug back up he gave it to the ones that had invested he gave it to the ones that took a chance took a Took a risk, if you will. And then very quickly and lastly, as I close here with you this morning, verse number nine, I see a heavenly guarantee. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Verse number nine. I think we could spend a lot of time you know, scanning back and forth in the four gospels we could look at the fragrance. Remember, it said that the odor filled the room. Well, oh, I like it when God's, God's fragrance is in the room. Amen. I like it when the Holy Spirit of God is at liberty to work and move, and He speaks to heart. And he, he, I love that. I love to see the moving, the, the whispering of the wind, so to speak, in our, in our services. Praise God. We could, we could talk about the fragrance, We could talk about the fame in this sense that it said, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached as I am preaching it this February the 18th, 2024, talking about the same Mary, her same devotion and her story is being repeated even this morning. He's throughout the whole world. This also that she had done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Christ set her example, her, her devotion as a bar. The extravagance of that, the the eternality aspect of it, all the features and the pictures of that devotion were set as a bar for you and I to behold and seek to live up to. But I think fragrance or fame was not that much important to her. What was important to her was favor. Our brother read this morning. Brother John read this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter eight about the churches of Macedonia, how that God bestowed upon the churches at Macedonia. He bestowed upon them a grace, a grace. You know, I've been to a bunch of churches, as I said, and I've been to a few where I could see, visibly see the favor of God on some churches. I could see where God put his blessing in them in such a way they were so, they were so centrally focused on doing God's work, God's way, that God put his, his blessing, his favor upon everything they touched, everything they did, every decision they made. It just seemed like God allowed them to multiply in abundance simply for this purpose that he could trust them to accomplish his work around the world. So there's a heavenly guarantee here. The favor is for sure probably the most important part. Many of us sing the songs of of Fanny Crosby. I think she wrote a little over 2,000 of them. Many of our hymns were written by her. She was a blind woman. Some of you know Uh, some of those songs perhaps by heart. But do you know what was inscribed upon the tombstone of this blind hymnist, Fanny Crosby? You'll find these words. She hath done what she could. I've translated many of her songs into several different languages and taught those songs to churches around the world. Just that, her ministry goes on through song because she was willing to do what she could. Have you done what you could this morning? When it comes to those faith promise cards, are you doing what you can? Commensurate to the need that is in the world, we don't, none of us have enough money. But the God to whom we are connected to, amen, the God to whom we are co laborers together with can accomplish great and mighty things. Would you stand with me and bow your heads? Have you done what you can?